Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Herbert Louis, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about creativity today, um, and in particular, kind of a, a practical approach to creativity. Like, I think this is something a lot of people aspire to, to be a little bit more creative, but there's also a lot of um, hang-ups around creativity, and it can be a difficult thing to kind of get into. So let's let's start with, I like to start sometimes with misconceptions on a particular topic. Um, so when, I don't know, if, if you just hear the term creativity, like, to you as someone who's really studied this a lot and thought about it and written a lot about it, um, what are some of the most common misconceptions out there that you run into when it comes to this idea of creative and trying to become more creative? Yeah, I think there's, um, I've noticed a, a few and we can start on kind of like the individual level. I think that um, there's this myth of like the creative genius, right? Like we, I mean, throughout history, we just have never been able to explain how great art or great like creative work is made and so we just we label it as genius um and i think one of the beautiful things about the internet or social media um or and probably just a changing norm as well is we're more willing to show the process um you know we're not doing all the work it takes to hide it all of the time and so now we really see hey there's actually a lot of hard work that goes into it. Here's how people think about things. Um, I think that's one of the biggest ones, honestly. Uh, I think at, um, I mean, at a collective level, I would say that the word is definitely being used and recognized a lot more. And a lot of times, for better or worse, it means to do more with less. So sometimes, you know, there's been critiques of the word um, in the sense that it's an excuse right? Like companies or governments use it as, as an excuse to get their uh, employees or other individuals to do more with fewer resources. So it's a little exploitative. Oh, like um, you're just going to have to get more creative. <laughs> you know, we're yeah, slashing your exactly. budget by 50%. Seriously. You're going to have to get creative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't heard that before? And, and um, I think also, but that's kind of the aspiration with it, right? And I think that's where a lot of the you know, some of the experts or the gurus or the leadership folks talking about it are, are hailing it as a new productivity. It's like, oh, you can have like an order of magnitude, greater breakthroughs or improved productivity if you kind of invest in this squishier amorphous thing called creativity. Yeah. And I, li I like how you framed it initially as like historically, we've tended to use this term like creative or creative genius because we just don't actually understand what's going on behind the scenes. Like someone just shows up and produces, you know, this amazing like work of art or this incredible invention. And so because we don't understand the mechanics of it, we just assume, well, they've, they've just got creative genes, I guess. Right? <laughs> it's just, a, it's kind of mystical, right? Exactly. Um, but it sounds like what you, what you're kind of implying is that we actually do increasingly, we kind of know, know more about what goes on behind the scenes in terms of creativity. So could you talk a little bit about that? Like what have we started to learn um, about how the creative process actually works and how people who look like just, you know, kind of creative people, how they come to be who they are? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, the most interesting insights comes from uh, this idea where everybody draws when they're a kid. Like every, nobody has to tell you to draw. You just pick up a pen or a pencil. You just you're bored. You just draw. You might even use just your fingers on like a windshield or whatever sometimes. But at some point, almost everybody stops drawing. We don't know when, we don't know why, we don't know where, we just kind of stop. And artists, you know, in particular visual artists are kind of like the people who didn't stop drawing. Um, you could probably take that idea and apply it into almost every single form of expression, right? Like we probably might've sang or like shrieked or done what are like written as, as uh, in our childhood or in our youth, but we just, somewhere along the way, we just kind of stop, life happens. So they say, right? So I think that's a part of it and kind of the dialogue, like that's an example of a lot of the other more anecdotal pieces of, of evidence. Um, I would say that one of the more significant breakthroughs would be, uh, you know, when Carol Dweck published her stuff on growth mindset and fixed mindset. And, you know, the genius idea is a very fixed mindset. You either have it or you don't. And to this day, a lot of people think like that. It's, oh, it's like instinct and talent and things like that. Um, but as her research shows and, you know, that whole body of research shows, um, the beliefs we have about what we do or how we do things and how we perceive our own actions also change the results. So it's kind of like a weird self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think that like those types of more modern um, psychological research or organizational research really shows that, um, you know, we really can influence our own creativity, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the, the big tension here with creativity, right? Is kind of, you could sort of frame it as nature versus nurture. Like are people just born creative geniuses or is it something that's nurtured and fostered and, and cultivated? And one of my favorite, um, sort of lines of research or you mentioned Carol Dweck and she certainly is one. And then Anders Ericsson too is, an, is another one who he, he became famous for, well, he kind of became famous when Malcolm Gladwell kind of co-opted his idea of 10,000 hours is what it takes to achieve kind of mastery in an area. And he did the initial research behind that. It was a little bit, uh, his conclusion was a little bit different than the way Gladwell framed it. But, but it's, he, he wrote a book recently before he passed away a few years ago um, called Peak. And he, what he does is he runs through just countless case studies of geniuses, like experts, people, whether it's like athletes or musical performers or artists or chess players or whatever. And what he does is like pretty systematically, he shows how in every single instance of these like kind of geniuses or super high level experts, they spent an inordinately high amount of time, especially when they were very young in that domain, whatever it was, whether it was art or music or sports or whatever, um, practicing basically. And they often had someone who was like a coach or a mentor or even a parent who was really encouraging this. So it, it, it sort of shows that a lot of times what we perceive as like all of a sudden, like someone was just spouting out like amazingly creative stuff. They were doing a lot of work for a long time behind the scenes before that creative genius kind of manifested itself. And this is something you, it's a segue to something you write a lot about and talk a lot about, which is sort of the relationship between creativity and quality slash quantity, you know, like thinking about 
Um, so I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, that, that idea of um, sort of the quantity of just doing stuff as a way towards uh, approaching more creativity and creative sort of outlets. Yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Anders Ericsson. I think that the deliberate practice idea is super important. And the idea of kind of practicing creativity the same way you would practice a sport. Like I, you know, when I was a kid, uh, my parents had me play piano and, you know, the, just through years of practicing three songs, six times a day, 10 times a day, whatever. I just, I think it was kind of drilled into me. Oh, like everything can kind of be improved with practice, even though I was completely uninterested in it and like had <laughs> absolutely no conviction to play the piano. Even just going through the motions actually made me better. But I think it, the, the effect is amplified when you actually do have conviction with something. And obviously, you know, the environment and kind of your, your inherent talent kind of comes into play here. Um, there's a researcher, his name is Dean Keith Simonton. And he's, uh, I think his, forgive me if I'm wrong, but his formal title is the Distinguished Professor at UC Davis. And he spent decades studying the people we consider to be creative geniuses. So whether it's Mozart, Thomas Edison, uh, Picasso. And what he found is this probabilistic relationship for between quantity and quality, which is the really jargony way of saying the more hits, the more hits you have, the more misses you have, and the more attempts you need to make. That just happens for everyone. And the relationship is probabilistic in the sense that there are always outliers. So, you know, someone will be one for one or two for two. Someone will also be zero for a hundred. But in general, on average, the safest strategy for any given person to take is to make a lot of stuff and then some of it is going to be good and other ones not so good. I think one of the the parts of the myth of the genius is we it's a form of survivorship bias, right? We only look back at the people who who have succeeded and we actually only look at the things that they succeed at. So for example, for example like, you know, Edison, we only know him for the light bulb. We don't know him for like the other 1500 patents that he applied for, the thousand that he actually got, and the tons of money that he spent on like some really like weird, strange inventions. I mean, it's only weird and strange because it didn't work. If it worked, like I would probably be saying, oh yeah, he's right. like a genius for two things now. <laughs> so genius is really like a, a label we put on things in hindsight, I think. And one of the things that Simonton talks about uh, is also we're just poor judges of our own work a lot of times. Like there's this idea of taste. And I think I I respect the idea. I like it. I don't love it because, I mean, you could probably, you know, a critic of me could be like, oh, well, you just don't have taste. But I don't think that taste is inherently, you know, it's a very squishy topic and it kind of depends on a lot of things. It depends on the the trends at the time and kind of like on history and then well, that also depends on like who had power at the time. And, and so taste is also a very, you know, a very amorphous concept. And, you know, to kind of circle back to the, to the practice idea, I think when it comes to creative quality, we kind of need to take, every person needs to take that back into their own hands 
and to say, hey, here's what I'm defining as quality for now. So for 2021, in, in the middle of the year, I'm going to decide, hey, this means quality to me. This is what I want to explore. And we can't just outsource it and let, you know, Instagram likes or medium claps or Spotify streams or whatever form of acceptance and recognition define what we define as quality. Yeah. So yeah, this is a good transition into the kind of some of the more practical aspects of becoming more creative. And I think the thing we're both kind of touching on here is that there, there's a confusion. I mean, we, that word creative does a lot of work, maybe too much work in the sense that we, we use it both to mean an attribute, like I am creative, but also a process, like something I do, right? Like I do creativity, I, I do creative acts. And I think one of the big confusions is people assume I have to be creative in order to do creative things. Um, which of course, if you are creative, whatever that means to you, it probably makes it easier to do creative things, but that doesn't mean you can't do creative things, even if you don't feel especially creative. And in fact, when you, again, when you look at all these, these experts and these people who we now label as creative geniuses, they were doing lots of things that in hindsight wouldn't have looked super creative, but the process of going through those things led to them becoming creative in the long run. Like you look at, um, uh, I think, I think it's Anders Ericsson has the, the story of Mozart who was, you know, is almost like the prototype of the child prodigy. Right. Um, but, but he, a couple of things he shows is that first of all, Mozart at like age, I don't know, it was like three or four, his dad, who was very into music, had it was basically training him to be a composer and, and a pianist at a very young age, which is sort of wild to think about. Um, that's like, sure. all, it's like his full-time job as a kid. Right. And then when you ask, when you look at, he, he mentioned, um, music critics have sort of looked at Mozart's early work, you know, and what it shows is that it's, it's, it's impressive given his age, but it's, it's nothing like that special. It's not especially creative or like groundbreaking. It's more, um, imitative if anything. Um, and that the, the really creative Mozart work only came after those thousands and thousands of fairly mundane works that, that was just, you know, taking lots of hits, taking lots of hits. Um, and then eventually the, the creativity came. So let's kind of, I, I want to um, kind of jump into talking about if we, you know, the listener, whoever wants to start being a little more creative. And I think that's something a lot of people sort of aspire to is to, they feel like they have some kind of creative impulse in them, but maybe have a hard time sort of expressing that or manifesting that. Um, where, like, this is a big question, but how do you recommend people kind of get started if that's where they find themselves? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I'll tell you a quick story. It's not my story. So I don't want to, I don't want to borrow too much. I think he'd actually be a, a cool guest on the show. But I talked to this guy, uh, Michael Saviello. And you know, his, most people know him as Big Mike. And he, he became a visual artist, you know, a few years ago. And he had this great quote, he, you know, he paints with a lot of people. But the unique thing about him is he actually has a day job. Um, and he just paints during lunch. So he, you know, has a, a hallway uh, that he just paints in. And um, he has friends or peers or colleagues over or whatever, and they all paint together. And he, he sees them painting and they're just staring at the canvas. You know, they're, he's, 
he doesn't get it because for him he just you put the paint on the canvas and that's it and i love that idea you know for me i remix that and i say you put words on the page um for someone drawing it might just be like putting the pencil on the paper or like the the pen on the tablet or whatever it is they're using and i think that's really how it starts um the we all think that like well, maybe not we all i don't want to generalize but there's this idea that the brain or the mind informs like what we do but it's more so like a feedback loop right like what we do also ends up informing our brain and our mind and we we end up the, our actions end up making our brains um you know kind of tell ourselves a story or like come up with more consistent things so you almost have to just start creating evidence of you know quote unquote creativity for yourself and i think that was one of the big you know whether it's a through line or a theme, it's it was one of the big ideas I was exploring in, in my book. Um, I think there really isn't a right way to do anything. Like it's just everyone's found their own way of doing it. And it kind of goes back to the quality idea as well. You kind of have to, you do need to define it for yourself, but uh, the paradox is it really helps to see what other people are doing. You mentioned imitation and I think Imitation is where a lot of people start. Like we, we really pick maybe three, five, ten pieces of work we like, or like uh, artists whose styles we really appreciate, and then we kind of start from there. And we, throughout you know the days, the weeks, the months, the years, we find more and different references. We start learning more about ourselves, and then we, we've emerged, and we realize, oh, like this. One day, someone just says, whoa, that's really original. When, you know, the truth is, it was a really long path to even get to originality. And I think, I think that we have really high expectations for what we expect of our creative work sometimes, especially when we're starting out. So just level setting those expectations is really, really helpful in thinking smaller. Yeah, really I love, helpful. I love kind of teasing out or distinguishing originality from creativity. I think we often, people often kind of conflate those things and think that, well, I, I can't be creative if I'm not being original, right? Because in our heads, those two things just go together so much. Um, but I like how you sort of distinguish that creativity is a, it's a process, right? It's a journey. And what we know from studying all of these like creative geniuses is at the beginning, they didn't look especially unique, right? Like. 10 year old Mozart's works were not like all that unique or impressive, right? They were mostly imitative. Or if you looked at, I don't know, I would imagine if you looked at Michael Jordan playing as a high school, you know, a high schooler or a college athlete, like he, he wouldn't have looked that distinctive, right? But it was he got only cut. like, he got yeah, cut from his high school, in high school right? Yeah. It was only after like a career playing did his distinctive sort of style and creativity as a basketball player really emerge. So I love that idea of kind of, uh, cutting that expectation of originality um, when you're just starting off and focusing on um, really just quantity, like just kind of getting it out there. So what are, let's, I think this is worth staying on though for a minute because I, I imagine a lot of people have kind of basically heard the advice to, well, you just gotta get started, you know? Um, but what, in, in your experience, what are the big blocks there? I mean, we talked about originality, that like high expectation of I have to produce something super original right off the bat. What are some of the other ones that kind of block people from following through on that? Yeah, there's so many. There's, um, 
it's it comes in different variations and forms and it it really comes as a feeling right i mean um stephen pressfield calls it the resistance and there's all sorts of other names and ways we can we can frame it um i think that i think that all forms of expression sometimes are about giving up especially at the beginning you give up so for example here's what i mean you give up trying to sound original. We were just talking about that. But it might mean, uh, especially like in the early days of creative work, or if you're just really getting back into the groove of things, it might mean giving up on looking smart and you have to take the risk of kind of look, of people misunderstanding you, right? Let's put it that way. Um, you have to give up on proper research and citation sometimes. That's not so good in the later draft of refining and especially if you're publishing and, and, and such, but you, especially at the beginning, you have to be okay with giving up on, you know, that level of refinement. It might look really janky or clunky at the time. And you just kind of have to be okay with, you know, if you looked at your own work at that snapshot in time, you, you would look like a hack. And you, if you were to judging yourself and that's okay, because that's how a lot of early work looks and that's how it's supposed to look. Well, okay, so let me, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I think this is, I want to drill down even farther because this is yeah. something I think a, a lot of people are like shaking their heads. They're like, yes, I should not care that much about the quality. I shouldn't care that much about what other people think, but that they've got that draft of that first blog post or, or new song or whatever, and they're about to hit publish or post. And they're like, oh my God, people are going to think this is awful. I know I shouldn't care about this, but I do. So how, how do people get over that? In, like in your experience, when, when you've seen people overcome that, that kind of fear of um, being judged and that your work isn't good enough, what are some of the specific ways that you've found that people kind of get around that? Because it's not even like a problem you solve. It's something you kind of like, you find a loophole through so you can just get started, you know? Yeah. So what, what have you seen kind of work for people with that particular obstacle? <laughs> so first of all, so let's, yeah, I think... I want to say that it's it's a muscle, right? I think it really gets easier as time goes on. So it's not always this hard. I mean, for some people it is. Um, you know, it gets easier, slower, I would say, than for others. I would say that there are a lot of tricks and like practical advice. So for example, you could you could schedule it so that you you don't post it right away. Like you're like, you know, in uh in certain content management systems or social networks, you can schedule something to go up live later, or you can use a different service to do that. The benefit to doing that, even if you schedule it for an hour or two hours from now, is you kind of forget that it was even gonna go live and you're like, oh, I, I'm like eating lunch and it went live and I totally forgot. So it becomes less of an emotional event. Um, you can schedule, if you're feeling really uncertain about it, you can schedule it for a week out or like a month out and you'll just forget that it happened and then it happens and you're like, oh, like what what is likely going to happen from that is you you just shipped it and it didn't really take much effort right so you made it easier for yourself to do that um and i think i went into detail on a on a piece for forge about that but kind of splitting up the completion of a of a project or a piece of work with the delivery can be really helpful there's also you can have someone else actually ship it so you give them access to your your account i can't even push the button They'll just put a button. It's not a big deal to them. And then ta-da, you're done. Uh, it could be some combination of, hey, if I don't do this, 
within this amount of time, then I owe you a hundred bucks or I pay a hundred bucks to a charity I don't like or an organization I really don't like. So there's other ways of holding yourself accountable. I'm not as big a fan of those because the pressure that comes from that is also very stressful. And I think with most with most creative work, you want to remove stress and you want to try to relax as much as possible. I, I'd read about like a like a songwriter who just tries to get as comfortable as possible. Everyone has to leave the room except her and the engineer. And, um, and it's, you know, candles, like whatever it is, like it just has to, the atmosphere has to be really right. One of the things from my own personal experience that um, with writing, which is one of my big creative outlets, um, one of the things that I think has really helped that I, I would not have guessed would have been helpful for me because I'm, I'm kind of an introvert. Um, but the thing that's helped a lot in my journey writing has been um, kind of like a supportive community or network of people who know that I'm writing and who are really encouraging. So when I first started off, actually, before I even was blogging, I just decided I wanted to write a book. <laughs> and I, I didn't tell that many people about it, but I've, I told a few key people about it and they were super encouraging of it. So even though I did have moments of self-doubt, I could kind of hear their voices in my head saying like, no, this is a, this is a super cool idea. This is definitely something you should do. This would be awesome. Um, and, and then like with, with blog, once I get, got started blogging more regularly, being in, you and I are both in the same kind of this writing community um, online that is just so awesome, just full of like really supportive, awesome fellow writers who are just really encouraging of each other. And, and I think the more general principle here is you, sometimes I think if you've got an obstacle, right, like I'm worried about what other people are thinking, it's not, you don't, it's not always a subtraction problem. It's not always how do I get rid of this obstacle? Sometimes it's an addition problem. How do I add in more positivity and kind of encouragement to outcompete that um, negativity, right? And I think this is, can be especially helpful with, um, with projects where even if you, you're not like shipping or producing something, right? Um, say you're just painting for yourself. You want to take up watercolor painting or something. Um, having that kind of external support, I think can be, is an weirdly kind of an underappreciated, um, form of getting over the resistance. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's that analogy of like how everyone has two wolves inside them and it just depends on which wolf you feed more stuff like so that's who's going to win and i really appreciate what you said about kind of feeding the the side that's more optimistic or more encouraging or more nurturing um i think that i mean i think the people element is really important i also think that it's it's all about other inputs as well right so for example with writing if you feel blocked or like you can't ship it might mean reading more stuff like reading might help and listening to podcasts might help and so you just don't know where the the kind of like the firewood for that for that uh, motivation will come from next so it's like really i think it's valuable to continue looking around um in both in your field and outside of it for that yeah this is a I think this is just a fascinating topic within creativity and, and the idea of trying to become more creative because it's sort of the, the role of um, social comparison in creativity. 
Because on the, on the one hand, you, you immediately think of all the negatives that go along with social comparison of, of your work, right? You're, you know, you're comparing yourself to what other people are doing and feeling bad about yourself, even though they're years ahead of you. Um, or, or you're using like consuming other people's stuff as sort of procrastination from actually doing your own thing. Like you want to start a podcast and you just listen to podcasts about starting podcasts endlessly and never end up starting your own. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, uh, like obviously, and this is, I think this is pretty obvious of anyone, like any like creative idol that we hold up, whether it's, you know, Einstein or Picasso or Mozart or like Steve Jobs or whoever, um, they obviously had a lot of inputs from other people. They had um, idols, right? They had people they look up to. They had sources they went to for inspiration. Um, so it seems that this is like a really interesting tension. And I'm wondering like just how how you think through kind of navigating that, like the pros and cons of comparison. Uh, any, any, any thoughts on there? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think comparison is like the worst thing in the world. I think that like, you know, there's, I don't, I, I'm sorry. I can't remember the attribution for this, but this, there's this idea where it's comparison is the thief of all joy. And I think it's also the thief of all creativity. It's, I mean, I think it depends on the person for sure, though, right? So again, you know, what works for one might not work for the other. But to me, if you're comparing, you're already kind of, you're, you're setting a limit on, on what you can and can't do. And you're also like kind of making a commitment. If you're comparing, you're like, oh, I, I want to be better than this person or get more likes or whatever it is then it's almost like a commitment to, to being unhappy until you, you get that. And you're, that's, there's no guarantee you're going to be happy after either. So it's just not a super, I don't think that's a necessary way to succeed at creative work. And I think rather than going externally, a lot of times it's valuable to go internally, but to use external things to discover, you know, as mirrors to discover your internal thing. That's almost as signposts. So how does that work? Because I, I, I think about this a lot. Like I, I have oft, I feel like I have been naturally pretty good at using comparison constructively, like in my own creative work. Like I, I, I remember definite times in my progress as a writer where I feel like I had sort of plateaued and then I would find, I'd read something by a, another writer that I really admired and I'd go like, that is so cool the way they do this, you know, like. I like, I want, and then I would literally basically copy, like start imitating that, like a style or like a way of doing something and kind of like working that into, so I mean, literally comparing my work to someone else's say like, they do this really well. I don't do this. I want to be more like that. And then it led to me like improving my writing and like me growing and be, I think becoming more creative actually, and working that style into my own style in a way that was sort of unique and authentic to me, even though it came externally. So it, it seems to me like there is, there is a, a productive, helpful way of using comparison, but it easily, it can easily become destructive too. So like, how do you, how do you know the difference? If you're, if you're a, if you're a painter and you're like browsing Instagram of other painters, like how do you know whether you're doing it for genuine inspiration and, and growth? Or how do you know whether it's going to be destructive and make you feel worse about yourself or something like that? Like what's, what's going on there? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a great point. So 
I would, I would agree a hundred percent and I've been in similar situations. Um, I would almost call that like referencing instead. I think, I think of comparison. I mean, in my head, comparison just is like a, not a positive word. So whereas referencing you're, you're still learning and you're, but you're looking not to see how you're performing or expecting how it's going to turn out. Instead, you're looking for like new ways to improve your craft. And I think if you're looking at, let's say, whatever word you use, comparison, reference, if it's related to the craft, it's always a good thing, I think. It's always good to see how other people are doing things and to kind of like get out of the, you know, the possible um, convergence of your own brain or like the myopia, right? Like it's like, like, and I think one prompt to do that that's really helpful, honestly, is I read it in um, in Curtis Jackson's book. So most people might know him as 50 Cent, but he wrote this idea where he writes books on all his competitors. And he got that from, um, I think it was from Lacoste. And basically, he's like, look, I want to know enough about what everyone is doing to write a book on each one of them. and and basically making a playbook for what they're doing. And I think that is a really helpful idea. So it is me looking at this popular person's followers or how fast they got there or statistics. Is that going to help me write a book on them and their and how they do things? Well, not really, right? But it is me listening to an interview about how they wrote their book or the tricks they use and stuff like that. Is that going to help? Well, it might, it might not but it's always going to be worth trying, I think. Yeah. I mean, to me, one of the things that when I think about that word comparison, um, I think for a lot of people, when they do comparison, it's, it's like inherently moralistic. It's sort of like it, it, it implies good, bad, right, wrong, better work. Like they're better. I'm worse. I'll never be as good as this. And, and when I think about, at least in my experience, the kind of comparison that's been really helpful to me, it's, it's pretty, it's mostly devoid of that like judgmental quality and it's much more mechanical. It's like, oh, like that's an interesting way of like writing a headline for an article or that's an interesting way of formatting. I wonder what my articles would look like if I tried. So it's very uh, maybe process oriented rather than outcome oriented. That, that kind of comparison? What, what do you think of that? I'm, I'm literally like throwing this stuff out there on the fly. As yeah, I think, I think it, you but... hit it on the nose. I love it. I, I think being, looking at stuff for your process versus looking at stuff to feed how you hope the outcome is going to turn out is a great way of, of kind of drawing the line, right? Um, and that was a fun exercise too, just kind of like, like comparing definitions because I'm sure, I mean, there's probably a third definition that you and I right. have not considered, but like getting into the nuance of this is really valuable. And I 100% agree. Whatever feeds your process, um, whether it's a failed experiment in that, I mean, there are no failed experiments with, with creativity. And actually, like, you know, especially when the outcome isn't, isn't that, um, isn't life or death, then they're like failed experiments can always kind of be managed, right? Especially if you don't bet the farm on it. So I think um, 
it's always like new things are always worth trying because you never know how they're going to work out for you, even though you might have seen them not work out for someone else or work out for someone else. Talk a little bit about the relationship between creativity and constraints. This is something I've, I've seen you kind of write about um, before. So I wonder if you could elaborate that a little bit and why, why it's counterintuitive, but why do you think constraints are actually helpful for creativity? Yeah. So from a, from a behavioral perspective, there's, um, there's this gentleman, BJ Fogg, who came up with this framework for motivation, the higher effort it takes to do something, the more motivation you need to do it. And he uses, he applies that to technology startups and stuff like that. So, um, you know, an app that's really easy to use, more people will sign up, more people will use it. I think in, in this conversation, in the context of creativity, constraints really help because you're, you're lowering the amount of effort it takes to do something. So let's say, hey, I'm going to give you 60, 60 minutes or 60 seconds. You have to draw something when, on this index card. Well, like there's only so much you can do with that. And especially if the index card has a line already, you're like, well, I can't, I have to work around that line. And so you're, you're kind of, you're already forced into this kind of uh, canvas or this like constrained situation. It takes less motivation to do it. It's just like, well, I can't really do much with it. Um, you know, I can't, there's, the expectations are really like time bound. And I think because of that, you don't really get to feed your expectation as much. Um, and so what's smaller usually, like when we think about constraints, it's either there's something you have to adapt to. So that means someone already, like some situation has already been applied to it and you have to work around it. And generally reacting to something or, or like make like working with a smaller canvas, like I call it size boxing, um, it requires less effort and so it requires less motivation and then that kind of builds the habit of it. Gotcha, which got back to our, our gets back to our earlier point about this sort of bi-directional relationship between action and motivation, right? Like sure, feeling motivated makes it easy to do creative stuff, but you only build up motivation as you do more creative stuff. So in the beginning, when your motivation is understandably kind of low, constraint, it sounds like constraints sort of help you get started, even though you have limited amounts of motivation for whatever your creative kind of endeavor is. Yeah, for sure. I think it also, I mean, constraints can be a really useful thing because it's a part of your story. And I mean, it depends if it's, um, you know, let's say you have really little time, that's a part of your story. And eventually when you you know, it's like 60 second poetry, or I don't know what what it might be. But when you tell your story, you may, oh, like every night, before I went to bed, I just took 60 seconds. And I wrote like a haiku. And here's the book, right? Like it takes, <laughs> it takes you'll have 365 poems if you do it for a year. And that like, there's the book, and it would have taken you 365 minutes, maybe a few more if you want to prepare themes, especially because, you're oh, I don't know what to write at the end of the night. So then you have like keywords or key themes that you can prepare. And then that makes helps you make the most of the 60 seconds. Um, there's a guy who did that with posters, you know, 60 second posters. He had he took in 100 words or phrases from his friends or that he liked. And so every day he would have a new phrase and then he'd make a 60 second poster out of it. Hmm. And they turned out really cool. Yeah, I love it. it's something. It's cool how something as simple as 
like if you if your creative outlet is um writing you know like i want to write a novel well if your goal is constantly like i want to write a novel like man i, I don't know about you but to me that's like intimidating writing a not how do you even do that you can't write a novel you know it's terrifying <laughs> super terrifying yeah. right but so, something as simple as like you know i write 300 words every morning um much more maybe not uh completely devoid of um fear right or intimidation but way less so than like i gotta work on my novel <laughs> holy cow so 100%. just the way just the way we kind of phrase it to ourselves i think actually matters a lot yeah and and the the word and the language i think really matters you could call it a novel you could call it a novella you could call it a short story you could call it my first short story and you know when i was when i was writing there's no right way to do this it was I didn't even call it my first book. I just called it a book because I was like, I didn't want the expectation of this is my first book. Well, let's compare it to everyone else's first books and the advances they got or how much of an impact they made. I was like, whatever, I'm just writing one book and it's going to be one out of many. And that's it. And even like, you know, on my shelf, I would have all of these small books like, you know, Seth Godin's um, Lynchpin was one of them. There's like, you know, a lot of books that are just super, super small. And I was like, let's just like really compare to these ones for now. And uh, then we'll some, work our way up to comparisons, like... right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's true. That's true. Um, it's, uh, yeah, that's actually a hundred percent true. It was me comparing with those books. And I was like, oh, like if, the, if I already paid $40 for this thing, like there's no reason to think that other people wouldn't do the same. Right. Right. All right. Final question for you here. How do you think about the relationship between perseverance and quitting when it comes to creative endeavors? So like on the one hand, obviously you're going to need some grit and perseverance in any creative project, right? You're, you're not in the groove. Like it's just going to yeah. take time. You're just going to have to commit and kind of stick with it, even though it doesn't feel natural. On yeah. the other hand, like it's, it seems to me, it's my experience that a lot of people hang on to creative projects despite it being a bad fit for them in the long run. And it would probably be smarter if they quit earlier and move to a different creative avenue that was actually a better fit for them. The implication being we're not always great at the beginning at assessing what's a good, if a creative project is actually a good fit for our interests, skills, talents, environment, situation, whatever. So I don't, I don't know. I'm just kind of fascinated by this idea of perseverance versus quitting when it comes to creativity. Yeah. Well, Nick, if we, you know, I mean, it's a great question. I think it really relates to the earlier question you had about obstacles. And, and to me, one of the big ones is commerce. And we could probably do like four other episodes on that. So I won't go into it. But just the idea of everyone has expectations for how their thing is going to turn out. The higher those expectations go, the the more motivation, sure, but you also start like cultivating a creative block. Uh, oh my God, like there's just no way. At some point, it just gets to the point where there's no way you can make it happen. There's no way anyone could have made it happen. So I think in terms of, and money really feeds into that or, you know, whatever, like vanity metrics feeds into money too. So, so I think that's part of it is if you want to persist, um, there's this book, Real Artists Have Day Jobs. And it's, it's about 
not always commercializing your truest creative work. Um, and I'm sorry, I totally forgot the author's name. I, th I want to say it's Sarah Benicasso. Uh, but um, I think that's a really big part of it is trying to do whatever you can to sustain it. If it's important enough to you, whether it's a good fit or not is up to, it's not always up to someone else to decide, right? Like, you know, if the money isn't a problem, then the fit also isn't a problem. You could be the worst singer in the world. You could be William Hung. And it still would be like, he's still pursuing his truth. He was at some point. And then he, I think he gave it up. He was like, okay, cool. I'm going to go like teach now because that's what I want to do. But I think that's kind of a hard question, right? To know what your truth is exactly. Because one thing I see is a lot of people get into a creative pursuit because they like the idea of it, right? Like they, they like the, maybe they, when they were a kid, they, they drew a lot as a kid and they loved it. Um, and they've always been interested in drawing. And so they decide they want to like, that's how they want to be creative. Um, but that's, I don't, I don't know that we're always a great judge of what our, our kind of genuine like passion or truth is right. And in some ways it's not something you can discover, you can know ahead of time. Like you almost have to, you have to test it out. Right. So I, I don't know. I just think this is like, it brings up this interesting tension of you, you might have a hypothesis or like a guess for what your creative outlet is, but it, it seems to me like you ought to, um, hold that, um, like both firmly and lightly at the same time, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, for sure. I think it, it really depends on the type of person you are. And there's, you know, we could talk about, you know, um, whether it's Donald Glover or like Eddie Wong or um, the uh, Lindsay Jean Thompson who runs the 100 Day Project. Like she started off, you know, her first 100 Day Project was with a with a camera and she started off taking photos. And she's like, okay, like halfway through, she's like, I don't think this is really for me, but she, you know, she committed and took photos for 100 days. And then the next time she did it, she decided, okay, I'm gonna try writing. And then she realized, hey, I really like writing. So that was how she found it. For you know, for me, I've I've done almost everything I've wanted to do. I've I've tried recording music, I've tried graphic design, I've tried drawing, I've tried so many I couldn't even, you know, we could go on for a while if you give me some time to remember the rest <laughs> of it. Clothing design, like I've tried so many things and it always went back to to writing for me. Um and, you know, it's a combination of a lot of stuff. I, I like this, though. It's getting kind of meta because what I hear you saying basically is the way to figure out what sort of a quote unquote true creative passion is or not is applying this earlier idea of constraints, right? You, you don't just like, okay, I'm going to be a novelist. And so I'm just going to go whole hog on being a, like, no, I'm going to try over, you know, 100 days. I'm going to try and write a short story. I'm going to write 100 words every single day. And my goal is to write a short story. Um, so the, it's this confined sort of experiment, right? And if that goes well, then I'll commit to another like bigger constraint and continue the experiment, right? Um, rather than this kind of black or white, like, yes, I'm going to be a novelist. Like, no, you don't know if that's actually what you want to do, right? <laughs> you might have yeah. a good idea, but it's, I think it's important to kind of test those creative hypotheses. Yeah. And the other thing to remember is everyone kind of wants to be creative, but it's more important to, in order to be creative, you need to do creative. Like you need to, if you're good, you want to be a writer, then you need to write. You can't go on 
you know, on whatever platform it is and say, hey, I'm a writer without actually writing. Like, and act, you know, whether you're self-promoting or whatever it is, you know, everyone needs to do other stuff outside of writing, but you also need to make time to write like at least once a week, once a day, whatever it is for, for yourself, right? Like that's what being creative, being an artist, being a craftsperson, whatever you want to call it is all about. It's all about the craft at the end of the day. Yeah. Herbert, this has been great. Um, it's been super fun chatting with you and there's so many like interesting uh, ideas here in, in creativity. We'll definitely have to come back and explore more of this stuff. Um, but where can people go to learn more about you and your work and you have a new book out? So tell us a little bit about that and where people can go to learn more. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I write mostly at my blog, herbertloy.net. So it's herbert and then lui.net. Um, I have a newsletter. So it's herbertloy.net slash best dash of dash books. My, um, and I send the three best books I read every month. And then I wrote a book called There's No Right Way to Do This. And uh, that's available at herbertloy.net slash reps, so R-E-P-S. I'm also at Medium with my first and last name. I'm at uh, Twitter with my first and last name. And Nick, thanks so much for having me. This was super fun. I feel like we kind of just got started in some ways. And uh, yeah, this was a really, it was really great conversation. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.